When I say the word authority, what comes to your mind? I never heard of that word. You've never heard of that word? Who would you say is in charge of Central Wesleyan Church? All the staff and Pastor Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I can't argue with that. Pastor Craig, the boss man. So what do you think Pastor Craig would do if I did something naughty? It'd fire you. Just like that? Well, no, he would give you warnings, and then if you kept doing it, he would fire you. How many warnings should I get? One. One warning? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me about a time where you, or your sister, or your brother might have been a little bit naughty and gotten into, maybe got into a little bit of trouble? Um, let's see here, which one? <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think is in charge of the world? God. God, that's a good answer. Who do you think is in charge of the United States? George Washington. George Washington? I would say so. Do you think police officers have authority? Yeah. Yeah? Do you think police officers are nice or do you think they're mean? Nice. Yeah? Why do you think so? Because they kind of protect us and they do a lot of stuff to help us mm -hmm. and keep us safe. Do you have any authority figures in your own life? My dad. Definitely your dad? Mm -hmm. Like not a second thought? Mm -hmm. Dad's in charge. Mm -hmm. Have you ever done anything naughty? Mm-hmm. What happened when you did something naughty? I got in trouble. From dad or mom? Dad. <laughs> what happened? Well, I was flying his drone and then I lost it. <laughs> Couple lessons learned from that. One, when you're flying your dad's drone, don't lose it. Two, Nick Walters, you're working on a two-strike system, so you're on a short leash here. Just, F just FYI, everybody's going to be watching out. And then uh, George Washington is apparently in charge of the United States. So that's all, all good things to know. That's why you come to church. You, go, you learn stuff. Make sure that you're all squared away. Um, today we are talking about authority. We've kind of been on this journey over the last five weeks where we're talking about, hey, how do we frame conversations with all due respect? How do we engage in meaningful dialogue when somebody else's worldview clashes with ours? And in week one, Craig and I talked about peace and how Jesus is looking to bring his shalom, his rule, and his reign to every broken piece of human society. And then in the next week, Craig talked about compassion. He used the story in John chapter 9 when people were so prone and tempted to, to blame others and point fingers that they were losing sight of what God was actually trying to communicate to them. In week three, we talked about um, how the Pharisees had a very particular view of Sabbath, but unfortunately it was steamrolling, hurting people around them. We talked about the courage that Jesus displayed in that moment. And then last week, Craig did a masterful job of unpacking a debate over whether or not Jesus and his disciples were required to pay the temple tax. And in that particular instance, Jesus punted. He went along with the ex cultural expectations from him. Why? Because he was calling his shot. He knew that he wanted to save his energy and all that he had in his controversy bucket for a larger conversation that was going to happen down the road, the conversation that ultimately led him to his cross. And today we're talking about 
authority. Now, I love that we included children in our conversation about authority because I know I was having debates with my friends about authority when I was in the playground. In elementary school, so you'd have like, you get in a debate with a kid and you'd say, no, I can do what I want. It's a free country. Or one of my other favorites, you're not the boss of me, right? And many of us have been carrying that kind of mentality with us for the past 30, 40, 60 years. And we get in a fight with someone, you're like, you're not the boss of me. It's a free country. Well, in reality, without any sort of overarching structure or authority, uh, societies, families, entire nations would, uh, would unravel in anarchy and chaos. We need to have it all tied together with one particular thread or bow. And many of you have been asking us, hey, I'm, I like this series. I like the fact that you are encouraging us to live our lives with convicted civility. That's a phrase from a scholar, Richard Bow. He goes, we need to be people of conviction. We can't just be like spineless jellyfish when it comes to the more controversial issues of our day. He goes, but even as we hold those convictions, we need to do it with grace and compassion. We need to be civil in the manner that we do that. So that, that's the term um, convicted civility. But many of us are saying, yeah, it's important that I don't yell at my neighbors. It's important that I use Facebook and social media with respect and that I honor and I show dignity to other people. But when are, when are we going to talk about the bottom line? When are we going to talk about like the baseline, this foundational truth that ties us all together? And the answer to that question is we're going to talk about it today. And we believe that Jesus captures this essence of convicted civility in a particular discussion that he has with people who are asking him a question. We read this in Matthew chapter 22. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can look up uh, in page 990. This is what we read in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened when the sec- to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? It's like an eternal soap opera, right? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. I love this. The crowd heard this. They were astonished at his teaching. Jesus said this, verse 21. We're going to come back to this. This is what I want you to keep remembering as we continue this conversation about authority. Jesus said, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Do not know the scriptures or the power of God. This this is what I love. Jesus answers their initial question. He doesn't skirt it. He doesn't avoid it. He goes, look, she's not going to marry anybody at the resurrection. There's not going to be marriage at the resurrection. There'll be no marriage uh, on the other side. But there is, in fact, a resurrection. And God says as much when he introduces himself to Moses. So let's look at Jesus' formula for using scriptures to address error when it occurs. He gently says, you're mistaken here. Here's what you're asking about, marriage in heaven. Here's what you're really asking about, the resurrection. And here's an answer to your major question, the resurrection, as revealed in scripture. So Jesus is able to peel back the layers, get to the core, and use the word of God to answer that core longing. 
that basic yearning that the Pharisees are asking. They're asking a bigger picture question, but they're not even fully aware of that. Or they don't have the courage to ask it point blank, so they kind of use a smoke screen to get to the bigger issue. Now, Jesus uses this word, you err, or you are in error. Like, very bluntly says, you're wrong on this one. But the word there, planao, properly means to go astray, to get off course, to deviate from the correct path. Another translation is roaming into error or wandering to be misled. In other passages in Scripture, this word actually means to be deceived. So Jesus is kind of confronting the Sadducees and saying, you're wrong, and you're bullheaded, and you're trying to oppose me. He's like, oh, I think you're confused about this. Let me clarify this for you. Let me illuminate this one point. This is the only time, to my knowledge, that Jesus uses this corrective phrase, you are in error in the Gospels. And again, even then, Jesus isn't scolding them. He's gently telling them that they've missed the big picture. Now, I want to be clear. We here at Central, we believe that the Scriptures are relevant to every dimension of human life. And we believe that the Scriptures are both inspired and authoritative. Full stop. There's no question about where we hold this book. Why we believe in it and how we hold it. The challenge is when two different groups of people, both claiming to believe in biblical authority, read one text two different ways. And I think that when we come to this conversation of the Scripture, especially when we come with the question of authority, we need to know this. It is not enough to know what the Scriptures say. We need to know what they mean. It's not enough to know what the Scriptures say. We need to know what they mean. And unfortunately, many of us have had people quote to us chapter and verse. And they were using the scripture as as a club. Or they're using it as a dividing line. They're using it as a wedge. Or they're using it as a tool to manipulate. Not necessarily to remind us that God's heart for us burns bright with hope and healing and restoration. So we need to say, okay, that's what that verse says. How do I put that in context for what's happening in my life and what's happening in the world? The Sadducees show us that you can know a verse... And miss the scriptures. You can know a verse and miss the scriptures. It's possible to miss the whole for the parts. And they are referring in this whole debate about resurrection to a very specific passage in the Old Testament that talks about death, family, assets, and legacy. They're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 23 specifically. And that passage reads like this. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not, marry, does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. Now, back in that day, if you gather the elders of the town in a public place, off in the town square or the city gate, you were setting them up as the authority. So if the particular brother-in-law is not complying with the cultural, societal, biblical expectation, she can bring him before the elders of the town. And she can say, he will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. The elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. They're going to try to persuade him and say, hey, you're not, you're not helping your family situation here, or we want you to reconsider. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, 
and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandled. Some of you didn't know that was in there. So now you have a whole new verse to pull out if you need to spit at your brother-in-law at a family gathering. No, you don't. That, you would be taking that horribly out of context. What is going on here? So the, Pharisees, the Sadducees, they know the verse. The question is, they're twisting this passage to kind of go on a rabbit trail that doesn't have anything to do with what it was intended for. So the question that we have to ask ourselves whenever we come to this text is this. What is the point of the passage? What is the point of the passage? The point of this passage isn't about property rights, and it's not even about the resurrection. It's about carrying on a family name. And then we have to ask this. Why is carrying on a family name so important? Why does that matter so much to God? Because carrying on an individual's name reminds us that what? It reminds us that every person matters to God. Every person matters to God. That no one walks through this earth overlooked, unnoticed, forgotten. Or what did he say? What did they say? That one of the most horrible things that could happen to a person growing up in Israel is that their name could be blotted out, that they would be forgotten. And there are many of us who have wandered through these doors, or some of you who are watching online today, and your question is, does God know my name? Does God, God even care that I'm here? Does he know my struggle? Does he walk with me through my pain? And I believe that the thread that we find that goes all throughout Scripture says yes, yes, amen, and yes. Just last week, I had the opportunity to kind of present at the With God class. And our lead pastor, Craig Reese, and I are having a chance to team up on these With God classes to help people in the first session understand the Bible. And as I was talking with people, they said, part of the challenge sometimes is when I read through the Bible chronologically, there are parts that just get overwhelming to me, and I tap out. Anybody ever try to read through the Bible cover to cover, and you get halfway through Leviticus, and your eyes roll back, and you're like, I think I just passed out for a second? Like, you just, you get overwhelmed, and you get confused. That's okay. Well, in this one particular instance, I asked her, I go, well, what parts are overwhelming to you? And she goes, whenever I get to the list of names, like whenever I get to like the 12 consecutive chapters of genealogies, she goes, I start to get a little bit overwhelmed. You ever done that? You're like, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. You're like, I don't understand what's happening here. Can I skip to the next part? And so then we have to ask this question, why is that there? Why is that in there? Well, back in the day, people didn't have Ancestry.com. This is like, this is an ancient version of that combined with like an ancient Hebrew phone book. Some of you remember those, like the real big books that are just lists of names. And sometimes you feel like you're reading the Bible, you're reading like a phone book. Why is it important that the names are in there? So that when people who are afraid or people who are struggling or people who are overwhelmed 2,000, 3,000 years ago, they could go to the Bible and they could find their great, 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 great grandfather's name and they'd say, those are my people. And they were intimately connected in the story of God. And if God cared about them, enough to speak to them, is it possible that God cares about me enough to speak to me? See, every person whose name, whose clan, whose lineage was mentioned was a real person. And they had real temptations, and they had real hurts, and they had real fears. And so when people read those, they would say, every person mattered to God, so do I. I can trust him with my fears 
and my struggles in this moment. Jesus replied to them, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. I want to ask you this question. Do you know the scriptures? Not do you know about the scriptures? Not do you know stuff that's in the scriptures? Do you know the heart of the scriptures? This last week I read a fascinating quote that's helped me ask this question in my own life. Do I know the scriptures? Am I committed to immersing myself in the scriptures? This is a pastor by the name of Herbert Palmquist, and he wrote this for his denominational magazine, The Covenant Weekly, in May 4th, 1956. Sometimes I have heard people say, I have read through the Bible twice. Or I have read through the New Testament three times. And the strange thing is that I've always felt a little bit sorry for them. No doubt that's a good exercise. But lovers of Shakespeare do not boast, I've read through The Merchant of Venice five times. They simply read and reread it. They keep dipping into it. They turn over old phrases as though they were precious heirlooms. They walk down familiar pathways along which they have walked so often that they think themselves to know every turn in the road. They drink from old fountains. They dig new wells. So do I read the Bible. Do you know the scriptures? And you read, when you read the Bible, are you drinking from old fountains and digging new wells? Or are you just kind of checking boxes, trying to stay a, ahead of the guilt trip train that comes with missing your devotions? Jesus said to the Sadducees, he goes, you're an error because you don't know the scriptures. Which would have been a major affront to them because many of them had been spending their entire lives pouring over the scriptures. The best way to avoid biblical ignorance, the best way to avoid biblical ignorance is to read all of the Bible all of the time. It prevents us from cherry-picking the verses that we like the best. It keeps us from only memorizing the parts that confirm our current preferences and our existing biases. I had a professor of the Greek language, Dr. Hellyer, who told me at so, uh, there's a popular preacher at the time that I was studying in the early 90s, and he goes, sometimes this guy's theology is absolutely horrible. Like, he mangles passages inside and out. But then he said this, he goes, but because he knows the Scripture in its totality so well, he's never that wrong. Because he knows the Scripture so well, he never veers into heresy or unorthodoxy. Now, I don't know about you, have you ever read parts of the scripture that you don't particularly like? Like, sometimes you get to a verse and you're like, oh, that one's going in my locker, or that one's going on a screensaver, or I'm laser etching that one into a coffee table. Like, that's a good one. That one's a keeper. And then you have other verses, verses that remind you that caring for the poor is not optional. Or verses that tell us that Pride leads to division between us and God and those people that he's called us to love. Verses that remind us that because Jesus loved his enemies, even as they were wounding him, we are called to do the same. Anybody ever read over those verses and be like, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to memorize that one. Those of you who are history buffs know that there is such a thing as the Jeffersonian Bible. The Thomas Jefferson like the Sadducees, did not believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in miracles. So Thomas Jefferson actually took his paper copy of the Bible and cut out all of the references to the miracles that he didn't believe in. 
And that copy of the scriptures still exists today. Have you ever stopped to consider that whether we do it consciously or unconsciously, every single one of us has a mental pair of scissors that we take to the scriptures every time we read it? I don't think I like that one. I'm just going to take that clipping and put that over there. I'm going to put this part in recycling. I don't think I'm going to need that anytime soon. The Sadducees were in trouble because they didn't know the scriptures. They were cutting out huge chunks that didn't fit into their existing worldview. But when our scriptural intake is both regular and systematic, we start to grasp the arc, the big picture of scripture, and it propels us past lines that just say, well, the Bible says to... The heart of God is. Or the Bible says this because. Jesus replied to them, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures of the power of God. And we have another passage in scriptures that gives us a little bit more backstory on that error. It's found in Acts chapter 23. It says, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, a religious council that included both parties, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope and the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And the parentheses here say this. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all of these things. Let me ask you this. Are there references to angels and spirits in the Old Testament, the Bible that the Sadducees would have read? Well, of course there are. There are repeated references to miraculous angelic encounters right in the beginning in the book of Genesis. The Sadducees had created a worldview that just kind of removed them from the equation because they didn't fit for them. Nobody holds a worldview in a vacuum. Not Paul, not Jesus, not us. And the question that we have to ask ourselves when we get to a particular conclusion on an issue is this. Where does our position take us? If we follow our worldview through to its natural end, what are the practical implications? If I believe this, what does it mean for me and how I conduct my business and how I live my life and how I pursue my relationships? For the Sadducees, the material world is all that exists. There's nothing beyond the world that we can see. So we should make the most of our one short life. In brief, their worldview is highly pragmatic, deeply skeptical, and now-oriented. But Jesus told them, you are in error. You don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. So just for review, what's, what's the initial debate about? The initial debate is about the resurrection. Is there a resurrection or not? And for Jesus' disciples, there is absolutely no doubt. The resurrection is not a possibility. The resurrection is a reality. And they know this because they've seen it firsthand. Now, of course, they haven't seen Jesus resurrected yet. And that's a point that they are still unclear on. Every time Jesus tries to tell them that he's going to the cross and that he's going to be raised again, they all all kind of push that away. But they they know that a resurrection is real. Why? Because they've witnessed it. Mark chapter 5 tells a story about how Jesus was walking along the road and there was a man by the name of Jairus who had a 12-year-old daughter who was sick and by the time he got to her house, she had already passed. And Jesus raised her from the dead and the disciples were there. 
They saw this girl when there was no life in her body, and then they saw her where there was. Like, if they had, they would have recorded it all on their phones and sent it, like, straight to their Twitter feed, right? They're like, this is amazing. This is something that's never happened before. And then again, Jesus is traveling in a region just south of where he grew up in Nazareth, a little town called Nain. And he sees a funeral procession coming out of the city. And the men are carrying on their shoulders the lifeless body of a widow's son. You can imagine, as a parent, and some of you know all too well the grief and the heartache that comes with, with burying your own child. So not only does she have that horror that she's trying to process. But in that culture, if you're a widow, you'd have a husband to provide for you, and you didn't have an adult son who could be your means to economic stability, not only were you grieving the loss of a loved one, but you, were on the, you knew that you were facing the brink of complete and total financial ruin. That you're going to be destitute. And out of compassion for both her and her son, Jesus speaks life to him and raises him from the dead. And then later... Jesus has an opportunity to raise a a personal friend, Lazarus, from the dead. So these aren't just like, when when Jesus and his friends talked about resurrection, they weren't just thinking about some abstract in the future mass resurrection, the way that the Sadducees were envisioning it. They were seeing it in, in actual names and faces. Why? Because every single individual matters to God. And God's desire is for every individual to know that they're loved, and every individual to be on the receiving end of God's transforming, resurrecting life giving breath. So while the Sadducees had the convenience of just having this abstract theoretical conversation, the disciples, who were unlearned men, knew because they had been first-hand front-row witnesses to the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. Now, the Sadducees hadn't seen any of these. The argument for some is that the Sadducees, because they were so involved in temple worship, might have been based in and around Jerusalem and not had a chance to witness some of Jesus' miracles that he performed in the Galilee region. So Jesus, having this knowledge, doesn't point to an example of a miracle that he's done. He points to something that they do believe in, the Torah. He points to the words of Moses. And when he quotes to them that line where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's actually referring back to a passage they would have known inside and out. Exodus chapter 3, which reads like this. Now Moses was sending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. So already, Jesus is reminding the Pharisees, you claim Moses, Moses had an encounter with an angel. So if you're going to believe in Moses, you have to believe in angels too. Moses saw... That though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Jesus said to them, what? You're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Notice how the Sadducees started their argument. They started with, Moses told us. 
But when Jesus refers to the very same passage that they are referencing, he starts his conversation with, haven't you read what God said to you? It's a very important distinction there. The Sadducees are saying, these are the words of Moses. Moses was a prophet of God. We respect him. Jesus is saying what? God is speaking to you directly. Do you have eyes to see, ears to hear, and heart to receive? The Sadducees were, they were experts on the Bible. The Bible says this, the Bible says this, the Bible says this. And Jesus was asking them a different question. He wasn't saying, do you know the verses? He's like, do you know the essence of Scripture? And the essence of Scripture is this, is that the creator of the universe is speaking directly to you. Do you hear him? It's a question that the Sadducees had to answer. It's a question that you and I have to answer as well. Because the truth is, the Scriptures are not primarily a manual for ethical living. Although there's a lot of great ethical principles that trace their roots to the scriptures themselves. The scriptures, rather, are a picture of who God is. The scriptures are a picture of who God is and how we understand God as revealed in the scriptures influences everything we believe about something that matters. Every worldview debate usually starts with this question. Where do you stand on this issue? You fill in the blank. Abortion, gender identity, human sexuality, Second Amendment rights, whatever whatever it is. Where do you stand on this issue? But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, every conversation should lead to this question. Who do you believe God to be? Who do you believe God to be? And the answer to that question, my friends, infuses everything else that we think about. Jesus said this to Moses. He goes, do you know what God is saying to you right now? This is the point he was trying to get to the Sadducees. Do you know what God is saying to you right now? He's saying his name, and his name is I Am. I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. Not I was, but I am. I am speaks to the lineage of everyone who is involved in that conversation in a way that they can understand. Jesus said, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. How does God ultimately, in redemption history, what is the one event that God uses to ultimately display his greatest power? It's not creation. It's the resurrection. The Apostle Paul says that if there's one doctrine, if there's one scriptural idea that our entire faith swings on, it's the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he goes, if that's not true, we should pack the whole thing up and just ship out. We just collect, we shut it all down. All of us who are all the pastors and directors that you just, you know, you prayed for, we all need to dust off our resumes and find new jobs. Because it's just, because none of it's true. And so Paul says it with such great force and fervor. He's like, I know that the resurrection happened. But many of us forget that the resurrection was not just an event. The resurrection is, in fact, a person. Jesus said what? I am the resurrection and the life. I am. So many of us, when we get into our debates, we're trying to navigate like where our positions are. But instead, we should be asking these questions if we hold the scripture to be our ultimate authority. And those questions are these. Who is God? What does God require of me? What is God capable of? What is God capable of? You know what? You know where I find myself getting derailed mostly in life? 
It's not because I don't believe in the scriptures, but it's because sometimes I get doubtful about the power of God. Sometimes I get doubtful about the power of God. So yesterday was at my son's rocket football game, the last one of the season. We should call it the Mud Bowl, right? And uh, we had, if we won this game, we'd get a chance to go 500. So we were like very excited about that. We were two and three going into the game. All we have to do is win this game and I can finish my first season as an assistant coach with a non-losing record, right? So like the stakes are high for me, even though it doesn't really matter. Nobody cares about it except for me. So when I see, a fa- like when I see one of the opposing players face mask one of our players, I make sure that I gently, kindly, quietly, very diminutively let the ref know that there's a possibility that a face-masking penalty has occurred. That's not what happened, but that's what I want you to believe. I'm like screaming my lungs out, like, face mask! There's a face mask! And the kid has the audacity to learn over us. He's like, no, it wasn't! I was like, oh, now it's on. Except it's not, right? Because that's inappropriate on so many levels. And so now our dads start jawing against their dads and the ref gets in and the ref tells me that I'm going to get my dads to stand down. Why am I all worked up? Why am I worked up? Because at my core, I'm afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of being insignificant. As if somehow a three and three record of a third grade football team schedule has any effect on who I really am as a man, as a person, as a child of God. But we all get confused, do we not? And in our fragile moments, we're like, I I gotta win this. Because if I don't win this, I don't know who I am. And our core fear is that I might not matter, or I might not be loved, or I might not be successful, or I might not be significant. What does Jesus say should anchor us in those moments? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus defeated sin and death and hell forever so that you and I don't have to be afraid of our insecurities. We don't have to be afraid of our failures. We don't have to be afraid of our fears. And we don't have to be afraid of our flaws ever again. So I want to ask you this question. Have you experienced the power of God? Have you at some point in your journey, have you experienced the power of God? If you haven't, then you're in the right place. So when this service is over, wherever your point of pain is, our care team wants to pray for you. So the power of God could be revealed to you in your trial today. But others of us, we can look in the rearview mirror of our lives and we can say, yes, I have seen the power of God. I've seen God heal people that I care about. Some of you say, I saw God heal a physical ailment for me. Or I saw God redeem a horrific financial situation and God provided in a way that I never could have experienced. It was almost as if God's resurrection power was breathing life into a desperate situation. For those of us who have this backstory with recovery, we have, we have trusted God with our hurts and our habits and our hangups, and as a result, we've seen breakthroughs that we didn't even think were possible. So at the very beginning of this series, John and Yismael got and told their story, and we got a chance to see God take people from completely disparate corners of the universe, competing worldviews, and bring them together in a spirit of unity. And right in this space, Yismael, with a lot of courage, said, I need, I need to make amends to the community of Holland, and symbolically, I'm going to do that here with you. And so I, I watched that from, from this seat with a lot of emotion. And then that later, later that week, the next day, I got to go to celebrate recovery and be reminded about the power of God's ability to resurrect us from the most painful and horrific circumstances in our life. And just very quietly, I felt like God was prompting me and saying, like, Steve, there are some people you need to make amends to. 
people that you have hurt. And so this last week, I was on a retreat, and they had a time of silence for us, and I had ran, run out of excuses because I kept telling God, I will write those, I'll write my amends letters but when I have time. And so I was about halfway into our three-hour block of solitude, and God said, how about now? <laughs> so I did, like, I, I, I wrote them, and it, God, it was overwhelming. And there was a part of me who said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to reach out to people who I've wronged. I don't know how they're going to respond. And I just felt like God was saying, Steve, I've defeated sin and death and hell. It doesn't matter how they respond. What matters is that my healing and restoring power is unleashed in you. And in order for you to know the power of God, this is the step that I need you to take. What step is God asking you to take so that you can know the scriptures and know the power of God? I want to leave you with this one thought, and that's this. I don't believe that the world is hungry for more rhetoric. I believe that the world is hungry for resurrection. The world is not hungry for more rhetoric. The world is hungry for resurrection. And with our 24-hour news cycle, with the ever-prevalent roar of social media, with all of the conflicts and all the division that are happening in our society, how many of you know that like, you, you could listen to talk radio for days on end? You could listen to your respective cable news uh, network of choice. You could lose it, use, listen to it for six hours, and at the end of it, you... I don't know about you. At the end of it, I have never said, I am immeasurably convinced of the power of the resurrection. But so many of us say, well, well if, we get, if we get the right talking heads and if I get the right talking points, I can wrestle this person out. I can defeat them. And God goes, they don't need to be defeated. They need to be redirected. Because Jesus with the Sadducees ultimately didn't say, these guys are so confused and they're so backwards and they're so wrong. He said, they have been deceived. They have wandered off of their path. And I'm going to give them an opportunity to know who God is, to know God's heart for them, to understand the big picture of redemption and give them a choice about whether or not they want to participate in what God is doing or not. So my hope for you is that when you roll out of bed tomorrow, you would roll out having scoured the scriptures, that you're a person who's committed to reading all of the scriptures all the time, whatever way that regular systematic reading looks like for you, and you're a person who's saying, God, today I believe in your resurrection power and I'm holding it in my hands. And as I go into my middle school, and as I go into my college classroom, and as I go to my office, or as I go to the plant, God, I am believing that the power of God is real to me. It's available to me. It can move through me into the life of another person. And I don't know about you, but when I try to live that integrated life, when I try to marry the knowledge of the scriptures with the power of God, I end up walking through my days with a completely different set of lenses. And I don't get sucked into the arguments the Apostle Paul says are foolish and stupid. And I'm able to call my shot and say, Lord, today... Don't let me be a part of anything that you're not doing. Don't let me care about something that you don't care about. Don't let me look at something that you're not looking at. Lord, will you expand my mind and my heart so that my understanding of who you are and my desire to see your power revealed is so great that other people get pulled into the resurrection as a result of how I live my life this day. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for us.